So again, we are preaching through a series of messages that we're calling Everyday Gospel, and we're trying to explore how grace can transform the granular moments of our lives as we go about uh, the lives that the Lord has given us. And what we've done so far is we have said that salvation, which you might say relationship with the Lord or reconciliation with the Lord, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone. And then last week, as a step forward, uh, Andrew preached about the depth of sin, both before we are regenerate and the persistence, but not rule of that uh, after we are born again. So that's a critical aspect of understanding everyday grace is understanding the persistence of sin. And so we're put into this position after we have celebrated such a great salvation that believers have in Christ of finding ourselves both struggling with sin and fighting against it and yet being declared righteous in Christ at the same time. That's just the nature of our existence in this life. And what I find pastorally and I have for many, many years is that Uh, Really, the test of our belief in the love of God for us individually or corporately, uh, the weakness of it often arises in the context of trials or suffering. So the question today that we want to take our text and apply it to is, is really saying, when trials and suffering are upon me, how does the gospel work in my life? For example, when I feel like I'm stuck in a marriage that just drains the life out of me, that's the most difficult thing around. Uh, When I find out that my child has a learning disability that is going to affect him for the rest of his life. Maybe when I have prayed over and over again with tears uh, for a spouse and I remain single in that. And then I think the thing that sort of is most common, you know, I've received a diagnosis uh, that really predicts a great deal of suffering for me in the future. And you could make up your own list. The trials, the things that I face right now, how does the gospel work for us? How does it work in us in those contexts? And some of the questions that, I, that I, you see or that you hear that rise up in your heart, uh, Lord, what are you trying to teach me in this? Which can be a good question as long as it doesn't really doubt God's love as if suffering comes to us just with a punitive or didactic purpose, a purpose to teach. Lord, why me? And behind that stands, what did I do to deserve to be in this situation. We often will um, sort of blunt suffering by saying something, surely something good's gonna come out of this. We're gonna hunt around for the good thing as if that would be easy to find out rather than just saying, I'm in a hard trial and I need to rely and rest on and know that the love, the love that God has for me. So that's, 
the text doesn't uh, directly address suffering, but I want to give you that context as an application for it as we go through, that it wouldn't be theoretical, that it would be something that, that gives life in the midst of real life situations. So with all that said, let's look today at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. This is on page 12 in your worship guide. We're going to focus on verses 3 and following, but we put, put the whole thing in here for context. This is the beginning of the book. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And our, our main point, the thing we want you to take home today from this is a deep view of grace, which extends to eternity produces praise rather than doubt and introspection. A deep view of grace, a deep view of the gospel that extends to eternity produces praise rather than doubt and introspection, particularly we're focusing on in the context of trials. And we'll look at this under three headings and, and we'll say that we have a gracious gift of union with Christ that produces praise, a gracious eternal choosing that produces praise, and a loving eternal predestination that produces praise. And again, praise rather than doubt and introspection. So let's talk about union with Christ. It's a gracious gift. You see, beginning in verse 3, that the bracket of this whole text is praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6 it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. And in between what you see, all this praise has to do, back up in verse 3, that he has blessed us in the heavenly realms where Christ is seated at the right hand of God in Christ. That all the spiritual blessings that we have are not just out there theoretically. They're not just judicially on a sheet of paper. They are in a person. They are in Christ. And he, he echoes that again at the, verse, at the end of verse 6 after he says, To the praise of his glorious grace, he has freely given us this in the one he loves, that is, in Christ. So the point that we want to make here is that every good thing that you have as a believer, if you know Christ, it all comes in relationship, in being joined to him by the Holy Spirit. And so just to review union with Christ, just very briefly, Jesus is the eternal Son of God from all eternity, begotten of the Father. That's his relationship with the Father. But in time, in the counsel of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he humbles himself and takes on flesh. And so is God and man forever. 
He lives perfectly, a sinless life. He goes to a cross and bears in his body the judgment of death for the sins of his people. He's buried and then vindicated or justified as the Son of God with power by being raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. Subsequently, he is exalted to the right hand of the Father and enthroned as King. And what Jesus owns by right of person and work, he gives to his people as a gift by faith. So that those who believe are united to him forever and ever. What he earns by right, he gives as gift to his people. Now, I don't know if you are aware of this. I think you are. The U.S. Marshals have a program. It's called the Witness Protection Program. And in the Witness Protection Program, you can be a notorious criminal. And if you are willing to testify against your comrades, uh, they will take you and hide you in some safe houses. There are five of them in the Washington, D.C. area. And during this time that they're hiding you and protecting you so that you can testify, uh, they will give you an entirely new identity. That means for you a new birth certificate, a new driver's license, a new social security number, a new name, a new history. They'll interview you so that they can find out what job skills you have. They're going to provide for you a new place to live. You're leaving your old life forever behind, and you have a whole new identity. And this is a picture. It's a dim picture, but nonetheless, it's a picture. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, then you died with Christ. You were crucified with him. The judgment that you deserve has been executed in Christ, and you get the benefits of that. And you rose with Christ to newness of life. You're no longer a slave to sin, and you have a new identity as a son or daughter of God. It's a new birth certificate. It's a second birth, and it's a whole new way of life. And this is what union with Christ is all about. And, and the, the personal aspect of being united with Christ is not just a theoretical thing. It's a real living thing by the Holy Spirit. And it means that, that although your body is dead because of sin and you're going to go into the ground barring the return of Christ and decay, your spirit, your soul is already alive in Christ and joined to him forever. That's inviolable. It's unshakable. And that's why Jesus says the one who believes in him will live even though he dies. That is what union with Christ is really about. And so in that, we have all these spiritual blessings, and Paul names two of them. In Christ, the holy and blameless one, you are holy and blameless forever as a gift. It's not something you work for. It's not something you earn. At the moment you believe, you're joined to Christ and are therefore, by virtue of being joined to the sinless Son of God, holy 
set apart without blame before the Father. Now, if you're not very aware of your ongoing sins, that just may feel like water on a duck's back to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you are very aware of your ongoing struggles with sin, it's like cool, refreshing water. God has made me in Christ holy and blameless forever and ever. On my worst day, holy and blameless. In my habitual sin, holy and blameless. On my best day, holy and blameless. I didn't add anything to it. And I'm adopted as a son. Everybody argues about Roman adoption, so I'm not going to go to the mat over where it's true or not, but some scholars say that in Rome you could disown your biological son, but you could never disown your adopted son that you had taken on as an heir. Adoption now, and then eagerly awaiting adoption on the day of judgment to be raised from the dead, the redemption of our bodies. That's what Romans 8 says. These are the spiritual blessings that are listed in Ephesians 1 that we have in Christ. So what's our response to that? Well, our response to that is praise. A quiet, maybe loud, but deep, substantial, unshakable thanksgiving and praise that God would give us this gift by grace of union with Christ. And see, that, that when you call this to mind in the midst of suffering, trial, difficulty, that you don't understand is of greatest consolation. Lord, I have no idea what else is going on. Uh, the waves seem to be breaking all around the boat. It looks to me like we're, we're taking on water here. But one thing I know is that I have every spiritual blessing in Christ who is firmly seated at the right hand of the Father. Holy, blameless, adopted. And we'll come back to that. So, God's gracious uniting us to Jesus Christ by faith is a foundation of praise. The second thing that we want to say in this text is, how did I come? How is it that I, a sinner, a hater of God and man, one who is dead in trespasses and sins, how did I come to believe and receive and be joined to Christ. And it's very clear in the text. He says, these spiritual blessings that you have in Christ come to you because, I think that's a legitimate connector for verse 4, because he, that is God the Father, chose us, it's you, those who believe, in him, that is in Christ. And I'll just comment on this, that you're chosen, if you believe today, you're chosen in the chosen one. Because First Peter says that God foreknew him before time. He foreknew Christ. 
And he made him the chosen and precious cornerstone. The appellation or the name chosen or the adjective chosen is given to Christ. And so then you are chosen in the chosen one. For he chose us in him before the foundation or creation of the world. How or, or why would you come to be united with Christ? Because of God's gracious choice. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1 says, it's because of him, that is because of the Father, that Christ has become for you wisdom for God, your righteousness, holiness, and redemption. It's because of him. And the scriptures are replete of this. Um, if you're new to all this, there's uh, our great forefather from 4,000 years ago or so, Abraham, had a son named Isaac. God chose Abraham out of the nations, and he had a son named Isaac. And Isaac and Rebekah had uh, twins, fraternal twins, Esau and Jacob. And if you remember, Esau actually came out of the womb first and Jacob second, which means that Esau, by culture and everything in that society, was supposed to have birthrights. He was supposed to get the inheritance. But Paul picks up the story of Jacob and Esau, and he says, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in choosing might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she, that is Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. The language couldn't be more clear in this narrative of Scripture. God chose Jacob, the deceiver, the not super nice guy, <laughs> the guy who had a lot of character flaws, over his brother Esau before they were born or before they had done anything good or bad. And if we overlay Ephesians on that, that means before the creation of the world. And this is the persistent story of Scripture. Jesus says to the apostles, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Unless you think that's simply a choice from among other people to be apostles, he follows it right up and he says, I chose you out of the world. So they were chosen out of the world. And we would say before the creation of the world, they didn't choose him, he chose them. And God said the same thing 3,500 years ago to Israel when he said, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. So I won't go on about this. I realize that for most of you, I'm preaching to the choir or whatnot, but let's just, let's just try to apply this a little bit. If you believe today, if you are trusting Christ, it's because God chose you and not because you were smarter than your other relatives or neighbors who don't believe. And that's just an absolutely critical thing to get way, 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 way down in our hearts. So it's a great anomaly to be a proud person who holds to this view of how people came to be united to Christ, isn't it? It's a, 
is terribly anomalous. It's a great inconsistency, to put it a different way. And so if you're, if you're here today and you don't believe, this is an invitation. If the Spirit is working on you to believe, then yield and go. And we will number you, believe, and we will number you among those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the creation of the world. And just to mention a couple of things about this, if you remember last week when Andrew was talking about sin, I actually haven't listened to the sermon yet, but I know some of the things that were covered. What you have here is that if, if people really are dead in trespasses and sins, if they're haters of God and haters of man, they are not going to humble themselves on their own and come and say, Father, will you forgive me for my sins? It's never going to happen. So one of the big problems that people have with understanding this is, what if somebody shows up and says, I want to be one of the number of those who are in Christ, and the Lord says, no, you're not one of the chosen ones. It's a false question. It's never, that's, that's, a, that's a non-question. You're making up something that, that is not reality. The truth is, if the Lord had not chosen a people for Christ to redeem, there wouldn't be anything. He would have died in vain because that's the depth of our sin. So that's just an important thing to think about. The other big thing that always comes up is if the Lord has chosen some and not others, why do we do evangelism? And I had that question when I first ran across this thing. And you just have to turn it right around and say, why would you can't do evangelism unless he has, right? But if he has, you have all the warrant and confidence in the whole world to share the gospel with everybody saying, I'm part of the harvesting. I'm sowing seeds and God's going to raise up his people. I'm going out cheerfully and with confidence believing that the Holy Spirit is taking the word of the gospel and he's giving life to people. And we'll talk about effectual calling later and that, that God has his people. And I just want to tell you what a, what a joy it is for me to go to a tribal group in South Africa where there's 80,000 people, and I, I only now know of about three male adult believers who are persecuted soundly, and to say to them, hey, look, God chose you, and he has a harvest here, we believe. People from every tribe and nation, be faithful, sow the gospel, and God will bring in the harvest. He's the one. It's it's his salvation. So we'll just take this back and apply it again. If this doesn't have anything to do with merit on your part, do you see how this is a deep humility? And then you can say in the midst of suffering, and, and you really... I think if we go over this quickly and don't stop, you, you, you need repeated spaces to really think about this if you're going through suffering and trial. Lord, if you chose me before the creation of the world and now I have faith in Christ and I have this suffering, let me put that all together. Let me hold it all together in a way that diffuses bitterness that brings me consolation and comfort. That's what Paul says, the sufferings of Christ overflow in our lives 
And so also the comfort that we receive overflows in our lives so that we can give that to others. So that they can be comforted in the afflictions that they have. So again, it comes back to humility and praise. So this is the foundation of how you can be thankful and praise God even in the midst of abject trial and suffering. And I'm going to move on then to the sort of why, to the how did he accomplish this. And I think that's the the word predestination really, really covers that. It says, in love, and this is the end of verse 4, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And and what I'm focusing on here is that there was an eternal choice before the creation of the world, but it's an eternal choice made by a sovereign God who predestines everything downstream from that and brings it to pass by his rule. And he does so out of an overflowing fountain of love. And this is something that really, I think, gets lost in this all the time. What's the impetus and fountain of all this? It's the love of the Father. It's the great, great love of the Father. And if you're in Christ today, you want to stop and say, Holy Spirit, will you you work in me to believe in deep ways the Father's love for me? That the whole flow of history as it involves the redeeming of God's people, is all coming from a fountain of love. And you know, everybody wants to to, uh, pit Old Testament revelation of Lord against the New Testament revelation of Lord. To, To say Jesus is full of grace and truth in the Old Testament God, it's just nonsense. The acts of the Trinitarian God all agree And here this is attributed to the fountain of God's love. So, if you're sitting here today, you were born sometime in the past, and God ruled over that. He ruled over the parents. He ruled over the separation of gametes in your father and mother and how they got to you and the arrangement of all the DNA and the separation of that. And so every single uh, pair, base pair in your DNA helical structure was ordained by God. Your eye color, your personality structure, everything like that. He saw you out of of your mother's womb and, and down the line brought you to himself because he's a sovereign Lord. And he did it all in love. And there's no indeterminacy or or contingency about the whole thing. Later on, Paul says it's because he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Do you feel the deep humbling that comes out of this? I, I hope you feel, I hope the Holy Spirit really gives it to you as both a thought as well as a deep conviction. So if you think about this, and I wondered, because we have some people who have adopted um, 
but I think it's, it's a positive thing just to think about this as an illustration. If you go overseas and you're looking to adopt a child from overseas somewhere and you, you find a child or children and you bring them back to love them and to, to live with you, uh, you can say that as you were standing there looking in the orphanage or the nursery or whatnot, that there was a, you had no animus against any of those children, right? You, you love them. You could, you could say, I, I love all of them. But this one and this one, I'm going to take home with me. I'm setting a special kind of love on this one and this one. And then the child doesn't have to pay for visas, airplane tickets, uh, all those kinds of things. Those parents assume all the responsibility for bringing that child home. And then later, when that child is able to, to think and talk about what has happened in that adoption, and they say, Mom, Dad, why did you choose me? Will, will you say, will that parent say, well, you were a little cuter, you were a little more cute than the other people in the nursery. You were taller, you cried less. How devastating. How horrible to put that, that child on a track of performance. But what you're going to say is, because I loved you. It was my choice. And I worked it out. And that's just a dim picture, a very dim picture, but a picture of God's predestining love for his people. And so what do we come back to in all this again? I would say, again, we come back to humility and praise. I think there's such a, a deep humbling about it that your praise maybe almost become silent. You know, you can hardly speak it out because it's so deep. Humility and praise. And peace of conscience with your technicolor sins. Have you, have you thought about this? If you're repenting and believing and trusting in Christ today, God has known and knows the worst about you through and through. Secret sins, public sins, technicolor sins. Sins that are embedded in your personality structure that are so difficult to get rid of. And yet... He decided to set his love on you, on me. And so, can you see how then these doctrines are not something to be argued about on internet forum, fora, or haggled about? If you don't want to believe these things, then, then God will bring you in your own time, in his own time, to understand those things. But what they are is a deep, deep, deep source of consolation, a fountain for humility and praise, 
particularly in the midst of suffering and in the midst of trial. So you see, secretly, we're kind of also preaching on Romans 8 here. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. And we praise you for the things that this text has to say. We thank you for meeting with us through this text. And Lord, we pray that the gift of humility that you could give us would last beyond four or five minutes. And that the inculcation and impetus to praise you would be more ingrained in our lives. And Lord, we praise you and thank you exactly right in the midst of any suffering and trials that you've given to us. And we would ask you to send us out into your harvest field so that those who are lost might hear this good news, that you might save your people and that they might come in to this joy that you have for them. Lord, would you build and sustain your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.